interesting show because it was like the perfect American family, right? I mean, even beyond perfect, almost strange in the fact that Ward Cleaver would work on his car with a suit on. And June Cleaver's hair was always perfect. Even when she got out of bed in the morning, she had a string of pearls and a nice dress, and she was just... Uh, that's sort of like the perfect American family. Well, we're, we've come a long way from Leave it to Beaver, and Father Knows Best is portrayed on television. But in the Scripture, we have so many fine examples of the faith in God lived out in the family setting. In uh, Hebrews 11, we see four such families. And this morning, we're going to take a short peek at four families who live by faith. Uh, we're going to read this morning verses 20 through 23. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons, the sons of Joseph, and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Let's just have a word of prayer. Father, we ask that the message that is in this text and in the lives, moreover, of these individuals portrayed here would be a role model to us those good things that they exhibited would be a model of authentic faith that would cause us to draw close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think that the American family ought to be on the uh, endangered species list. I know there's a big campaign out there to save everything but the family. Save the owl. Save the whales. How about save the family? Because the family is being assaulted. And... You who hold the family values are being seen more and more by many people in this country as the enemy. Time magazine put a special edition out, 93-page report, and the name of the issue was Beyond the Year 2000, What to Expect in the New Millennium. In the section on family and parenthood and marriage was this article entitled, The Nuclear Family Goes Boom. The article said... It is reasonable to ask whether there will even be a family at all. Given the propensity for divorce, the growing number of adults who choose to remain single, the declining popularity of having children, the evaporation of the time that families spend together, another way may eventually evolve. It may be quicker and more efficient to dispense with family-based reproduction. Society could then produce its future generations in institutions that might resemble state-sponsored baby hatcheries. Predic predictions like that are scary. Are they going to happen? Is this what's going to happen to the American family? Will these predictions be fulfilled? Not in my home, they won't. And not in your home, I hope. You see, that's really the issue. As we look around and we see disintegration, we ought to stop and say, wait a minute, I see what's going on, but like Joshua said of old, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and make a stand in the midst of it. When Time Magazine predicted this, they left one major factor out of their prediction, God. They left Him out when they made that prediction. 
They didn't take into account all the people who still trust in God when they made that prediction. There are still people who put God at the center of their family. There's some of them out there. There are still people who hold to the tenets of Scripture and are deciding to raise their family in an environment of godliness. And these families, many of them are a part of the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, most of them are, I believe. And Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. We are admonished by one author named Bob Welsh. He said, In the 90s, parents must commit to the seriousness of raising a child. The children aren't some sort of cabbage patch doll. They are gifts from God, and we need to love them as such. One thing for sure, as I look at this text this morning, at the lives of Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses' parents, I see that faith, as lived out by these biblical role models, is not something to be relegated to a Sunday experience. I grew up with the term in uh, my family, but it was a part of the religious upbringing. It was called your Sunday obligation. Have you ever heard that term? Your Sunday obligation. That's how I viewed church. It's my duty, my encumbrance, my Sunday obligation. And you can fulfill it on Sunday morning or Saturday night in some cases. Just get it over with. It was sort of the message. So that you can do your own thing. Give God his little hour and then go live your life. In reality, faith in God is to be a life-governing faith, right? It's to govern... Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You can be nourished on Sunday, but your life is to be lived the rest of the week. F.B. Meyer said, Give all to God, take all from God, use all for God. Now the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, these patriarchs, they had lapses of faith, but more than anything else, they lived by the principle of faith. We have a list of four families, and I've included Moses' parents in here as well, so that we can do a separate study on the life of Moses in the following verses. But these were people who lived faithful lives. I want to underscore something before we move on. When I say faithful, I don't mean perfect. So take your family off the hook for a minute, or your life off the hook. God does not expect absolute perfection. He knows you too well. By the way, I've never met a perfect person. Neither have I ever seen a perfect family. I've seen a lot of good families, lots of good families, a lot of examples and role models, but I've never seen a perfect one. I take that back. I saw one perfect family. They told me there was a perfect family. It was a husband and wife who said, we have the perfect marriage. We have the perfect family. Nothing seems to go wrong. We pray about everything. Everything's just perfect. They had a perfect divorce several years later because they didn't acknowledge that as human beings, we're men and women of flesh, we're not perfect. And we need to get along through forgiveness and we need to be flexible with each other. There's two things that I would like to look at basically this morning and the ramifications of both of these. First of all, faith within the home and then faith within the heart. That's basically the way I'm dividing this text up into two. Faith within the home and faith within the heart. That is, there's a family setting, but there's also a personal setting. Um, As you look through these examples in verses 20 through 23 you notice that each of them is an example of faith in a family setting. The mention is passing the baton of faith from father to son or grandfather to grandson or brother to brother or parents to child. 
but it's faith within a family setting, which, by the way, is the best place to cultivate faith within the home. Paul the Apostle was the one who nourished young Timothy. Young Timothy was a pastor growing up, wanting to serve the Lord, and Timothy was being tutored by Paul. But Paul looked back to Timothy's life. He said, Timothy, from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. And Paul looked further back and named the people responsible for such an upbringing. He said, Timothy, when I look at your life and I see the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, which I am also persuaded dwells in you. It was something that was cultivated and nurtured within the family. You see, a healthy spiritual environment is one of the greatest gifts you can give to your children. It is a launching pad. It is a launching pad. To get those children out. And we ought to see our children, by the way, as the Scripture sees them. The Bible says that our kids are like arrows in the quiver of a hunter. And you can see how the imagery is perfect. A hunter takes out an arrow and just doesn't go... He sees a target and he aims carefully. And he wants that arrow to be launched, hitting the target that was marked out beforehand. And so our our children, God has a spiritual mark that He wants them to hit. And we can launch those kids out in the name of the Lord to make an impact for the gospel. Nick Stinnert, a chairman of the Department of Human Development, University of Nebraska, did a study on strong families. He looked around the world and found the 3,000 strong families and wanted to find the factors that contributed to their strength. He said in his report, Altogether, we studied these 3,000 families, collected lots of information, but when we analyzed it all, we found that there were six main qualities in every strong family. And here are those qualities. They are committed, first of all, to the family. They are committed to the family. Secondly, they spend time together. Thirdly, they have good family communication. Fourthly, they express appreciation and encouragement to each other. Fourth, they have a strong spiritual commitment. And finally, they are able to solve problems in a crisis. A scripture that is often used is Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way he shall go, and then when he is old, he will not depart from it. That has been a promise that probably every parent I know has grabbed a hold of for dear life. That does not mean, however, that your children will never go through a time of rebellion. I don't, I don't think I've ever known a kid growing up who hasn't had some sort of rebellion against his or her parents. Some of it's very mild, some of it's very strong, but there is a time. But parents, don't hold on to that scripture, and then when you see a rebellion taking place, say, it didn't work. Hey, don't you dare close the book on that kid. The last chapter hasn't been written. God is still able to bring that child back. and says, when he is old, he will not depart from it. It might take some time, but God is able to grab a hold of that child. Would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 for just a moment? I want to elaborate on this. And we look at an Old Testament principle that the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, have lived by for generations. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll begin in verse 1. If you're not quite there yet, you'll catch up. This is the commandment, verse 1. These are the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God 
to keep all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly in the as the Lord your God, the Lord God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. That's the first and greatest commandment. But it is not the kind of commandment that is to be kept to ourself. The next several verses say that we're to pass that on. Verse 6, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Spiritual truth is primarily the responsibility of the home, not the church, not the Christian school, not the curricula. There is no magic curriculum that you can find that's going to change the life of your child. Primarily, parents are to do spiritual training, while in our case, in this society, the school comes along and provides the education. You are not to delegate the responsibility of parenting to any teacher or any institution. It should come from the home. Now, the church... The Sunday school can train your child in theology. You can train your child in authenticity because they get to watch you during the week. They got to watch you when you get angry. They get to watch what just drives you nuts. They get to watch what things make you happy. And boy, do they watch. You're able to model that for them. I want you to notice how it works. Look at that verse again. When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down. In other words, it's a normal, natural part of life you train your child. You don't have to have sermon time for the kids. You don't have to say, now kids, sit down. I've got an hour message I've prepared just for you. First of all, turn to the book of Leviticus. I met a man some years back. He said he was having problems with his children, with his wife. There was a lack of respect. There was a rebellion like all get. They wouldn't listen to a thing he said. He says, now I'm a man of God and I train my family. In fact, I've built a pulpit and it's in my living room. And I give my family a message every day. And I wouldn't even make my family sit through that. When you walk, when you sit, when you put them to bed, when you have dinner time, as a natural easy conversation, not this rigid kind of instruction. The other day I was driving with my son. Let me back up. A few years ago, my father bequeathed to me, he gave to me, though while still alive, this 1967 four-wheel drive. I've had it in my family since I was 13. It has been my dad's pride and joy. It has been my mother's thorn in the flesh. She always wanted to get rid of that thing. It was a beat-up green army canvas thing with dents all over it. My dad loved it. He kept it going, and he kept it out in the back, and he kept oil in it. And finally, a few years ago, he calls me up, and he says, Hey, I've got this thing out in the back. Would you like it? I said, Absolutely. He says, Good. Come and pick it up. So I came out on one of my trips to California, drove it all the way back here. Actually, I didn't drive it. I towed it. 
In the last two and a half years, I've spent restoring it. Put a new paint job on it, took the dings out, put a new top, new upholstery, just kind of babied it in honor of my dad. Took pictures, sent it to him, and he's just thrilled. Since it was passed on to me, being it's 25 years old now, this car, I said, Nathan, when you grow up and you get to a point where you can appreciate this vehicle, I'm going to pass this on to you. And he is elated. And he sees that thing and he goes, it's my car. The other day I was driving down the street in this thing with him and uh, top speed, 40 miles an hour. And we were just talking and he was talking about this thing and I said, you know, Nathan, what Daddy has done to this car is what God does to our lives. Of course he went, huh? He said, that's right. Daddy took this old thing and restored it. I didn't go get a new one from the lot. I just got this thing and put a new paint job on it and fixed it up and worked hard and restored this beat-up old pile of junk into something useful. And Nathan, God does that to our lives. He comes in and He changes us completely. He takes the broken parts of our life and He fixes them. He restores them. And it was just an excellent conversation, a time to teach Him truth. We do that often at dinner table or when He goes to bed and we're just... Laying on his bed talking. Great opportunity to share spiritual truth. Folks, it's society that has made Christianity a Sunday religion. Oh yeah, it's Sunday. Put on your Sunday best. Open that book they call the Bible. That's when we do it, on Sunday. Instead of something that's every day of the week. Some people have asked me, how come you don't have communion every Sunday in this church? I ask right back, when was the last time you had it in your home? Make it a part of your home. My family, we have probably communion every week, every other week. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, Nathan doesn't have the same appreciation for communion in the, as the elements as we do. And he doesn't hush his voice. And we make it a lot of fun. We sing fun songs. Sometimes we act out the parts of the Bible that we read. We do say, play, and pray. We read it. We dress up like the characters in the Bible we read about. And each of us assumes a part. And he learns that lesson really well and has a lot of fun doing it. That's the idea here. A normal part of your family life. When you walk, when you sit, and when you lie down. All right. Now back in Hebrews 11, I want you to notice something else about faith within the family setting, faith within the home. As you look at each of the verses, you notice that faith is demonstrated by the head of the family in these cases. By faith, Isaac, that's dad, Bless Jacob and Esau. That's his kids concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. This is blessing the grandkids. And by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. In these cases, the head of the home is taking the initiative. It's a very important point to me. It doesn't mean that he dominates, but he takes the initiative spiritually. As you read the book of Proverbs, you find that a bulk of the book of Proverbs is a father writing to his son things that he's learned about God. Twenty-three times Solomon says, My son, listen to my instruction. My son, these are the words of life that you ought to follow. In the case of Joshua, he was the one that stood up as head of the home and said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Dads, is it possible without pointing any fingers, but is it possible that you have delegated the religious stuff to somebody else? For the wife, that's woman's work. For the church, 
to friends or to a Christian school instead of assuming the headship of the home. Now, some people do look for a church because this is sort of a baby boom phenomena again. A period of conviction comes to parents. They have kids and they think, these kids need a dose of God. We better find a good church so my kids can get a dose of God. Well, if you haven't been bitten and you don't have the same dose, your kids will pick up on that so quickly. Jim Dobson said, While I do not minimize the vital role played by the mother, I believe a successful family begins with her husband. I would like to read a letter to you that was written by a 16-year-old girl to her father. Um, This family, though far far from having perfect things happen all the time, is one in which the parents have exemplified godliness. And this girl wrote to her father this letter on his birthday recently. She said, In less than a month, I'll be turning 16. And before you know it, I'll be out of the house. Laughter, tears, trials are basically what a father and daughter relationship is made of. The birthday that you are having today symbolizes another year, and you get to be my role model of a godly husband and a wonderful, loving father. Sixteen years ago, I'm sure you never expected life with me as it is today. You have truly been a blessing in life. You have taught me right from wrong and good from bad. I know that sometimes I may not realize it, but Daddy, you do know best. Thank you for lending me a hand in time of need and for even for letting me fall flat on my face with God and being there to help me up. But most importantly, thank you for raising me in the way of the Lord. So when I get older, everyone will say, I hope she has her father's eyes. I hope that you have had a wonderful birthday and will always remember this. I still am and always will be your little girl. I love you. Hey, a parent can't get a better compliment than that. They raise up at the end and call you blessed and say thank you for raising me in the ways of the Lord. I wanted to share that with you. I agree with the person who said a child is not likely to see God as their father until they see a little bit of God in their own father. Now finally, I want you to look again at the text and notice that each of these deals with faith at the end of a family life. In each case, I say in each case, in the first three cases, the men mentioned are at the point of death. They have grown old as the head of the family. Now they are facing what goes beyond this life. They're looking right in the face of death. And each of them makes a remarkable statement. We'll mention that next, but they're examples of faith exhibited at the time of death. Sometimes we wonder, what's it going to be like when I face death? How am I going to do? I have found that many Christians, though they're a little bit antsy about what death is going to be like, often find that it's a very peaceful time as they approach that latter part, that last leg of the journey. There's an incredible peace that they have with God. Each of these died without seeing the promises. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses' parents trusted God's promises. They're at the end of their lives together, and none of them are fulfilled, but they still believe it. I like to say that Christians grow old differently than non-Christians, for the most part. They certainly die differently. I've watched both die. I've buried both kinds. And usually Christians grow old with a sense of grace. Each wrinkle represents a trial, but it's also mileage walked with God. God has walked me through this. 
I've earned every wrinkle I have. But God has walked me through it. And they definitely die differently. I have a pamphlet in my file called Last Words of Great Men. And it shows how differently unbelievers and believers die. Voltaire, the atheist who used to spend most of his life um, demeaning Christianity and thinking that we're a bunch of fools. At the end of his life, his last words were, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell, O Christ, O Jesus Christ. He cried out for forgiveness all night and just wept. His nurse said after his death, she said, I never want to witness the death of another unbeliever for all the money in Europe. Mahatma Gandhi said at the end of his life, My days are numbered. I am not likely to live very long, perhaps a year or so. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in a slough of despond. Everything around me is darkness, and I am praying for light. Buddha, his last words, I have not attained my goal. Compare that to believers. The great hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, who wrote The Rock of Ages, died at 38 years of age. And on his deathbed he said, I am enjoying heaven already in my soul. My prayers are all converted into praises. Joseph Everett, for 25 minutes before he died, said, Glory, 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 glory. Finally he was there, in glory. What a difference indeed. So we see faith in the home. Now look at faith in the heart. What I mean by this is simply, each of these people in the list had a role modeling of faith within the home. But they didn't just rely on that. They had faith in their own hearts when they left home. You can never borrow your parents' faith. You can never say, Well, I know I'm all right. My parents raised me as a good Christian boy or girl. My grandmother, she's a godly woman. I remember when I first came to Jesus Christ. And I went back to my parents to tell them that I was a Christian. They said, Come on. You've always been one. In other words, you can borrow our faith. We had a great experience. We gave it to you. But you can't borrow anybody's faith. You have to have your own in your own heart. Look at verse 20. Let's just briefly look at the lives of these individuals and the example mentioned here. Verse 20, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Let me tell you about Isaac. He was a lot like his dad in that he wanted to have kids but couldn't have kids. His wife Rebecca was barren, the Scripture says, unable to have a child, unable to get pregnant. So there's a beautiful story of him crying out to God that his wife would get pregnant. She does. She has a tough pregnancy. And Rebecca wants to find out why, so she prays to God. And God says, Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. And that's enough to give anybody labor pains, I suppose. <laughs> two nations! Meaning, of course, two children who would have descendants and eventually be two nations. And God said, the older one will serve the younger one. The two kids were born. Esau, which means red or hairy. He was both when he was born. And Jacob, which means one who catches the heel. And he did just that. As they came out of the womb, Jacob grabbed onto his brother's heel. He became one who supplants or deceives, catches the heel, all throughout their life together. Jacob had a spiritual side to him that Esau did not have. Esau could care less about spiritual things. Though Esau was the oldest kid, and should have the family blessing from the dad on to the oldest son. He could care less about it. One day he came in from the field. He was so hungry. He said, Jacob, cook me up some of that great stew that you always cook up. Throw a little chili in it. Of course, I'm paraphrasing it for New Mexico here. <laughs> Jacob said, I'll make you some stew, but sell me your birthright that is the right of the oldest. 
Esau said, what good is a birthright to me? Take it. Just give me that stew. And so he sold off his birthright as the oldest son for a bowl of stew. When Isaac was now an old man and he couldn't see very well, he said, Esau, my oldest son, go out and, and prepare some great savory food. Go out and hunt and bring in that food and prepare it. I'd like to eat it. And when you do, I'll give you a blessing. Jacob's mom overheard it. said, Jacob, come here. Your dad's going to give away the family blessing. You know that the prophecy is for you. And she went about the wrong way to fulfill God's promise. But she had her son dress up and put hair all over his arm so he would feel like his brother, since he himself is soft-skinned, and put on his brother's clothes so that he would smell like his brother. Came in, gave his father some food. Father said, who is it? And he said in a fake voice, I'm Esau. He said, you don't sound like Esau, you sound like Jacob, but boy, you sure smell like him. And so he gave the family blessing to the youngest son. When Esau found out about it, he was angry. He said, I'm going to kill my brother. But Father Isaac, though he had blessed the wrong child, realized that all along this was God's order, even as God told my wife, Rebecca. I haven't been acting by faith all along, but there was this great burst of faith as he was now dying on his deathbed. And he realizes the sovereignty of God to back a person into a corner to get the job done. And so he issues a second blessing. And he says, may you increase and be fruitful and fill the land. You're going to inherit the land and the older will serve the younger. Have you ever heard a person say, I've tried everything. I've done it all. There's nothing left to do, I guess, but just trust God. Well, that's where God wants you to be. And sometimes God will allow you to be backed into a corner, so that's all you got left. Isaac's backed into a corner. Oh, he lived by faith, but he had lapses of faith. And now at his old age, he realizes, no, 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 no. Just like I was chosen, being the youngest son in my family, the blessing goes to the youngest son in this family. Next on the list is Jacob, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. Um, if I were to sum up Jacob's life, he started out as a rat. He was a deceiver. He was a conniver. And yet God honors his faith anyway. God changes him in the course of his life, from his younger years all the way through his older years. So for the most part, he lived trusting God. Now he also comes to a point where he's old. And he has now been taken down to Egypt where one of his younger sons, Joseph, is the prime minister. Joseph knows that Jacob's getting real old, so it's time to take his own two kids, the grandkids, and bring them before Jacob and get a blessing. When Joseph brings Ephraim and Manasseh, Manasseh being the oldest, Ephraim being the youngest, to Jacob, the Scripture says that Jacob knowingly switched his hands and put his right hand on the younger son's head and his left hand on the older son's, conferring the blessing to the younger. And Joseph said, Dad, look, you're doing it all wrong. I know you can't see. Switch your hands. And he resisted. And he said, look, God knows what he's doing. And he foresaw the time when Ephraim and Manasseh, though being here in Egypt, would occupy the land, their descendants would. I'm, I'm kind of uh, mixing the story up, Joseph and Jacob, aren't I? Um, Jacob, no, I'm not. I'm, I did fine, all right. I'm, I'm thinking of two different stories. Both grandkids, right, Joseph's kids would go down into the land of Israel from Egypt. 
And so the idea is this. Both Isaac and Jacob foresaw a land that their descendants would occupy and uttered that by faith. Now look at verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Joseph spent most of his adult life, excuse me, all of his adult life in Egypt. He never saw the land after the age of 17. There was a famine in the land of promise. Everybody's now in Egypt. But he believed so strongly that though they haven't seen the fulfillment of the promise, and it's been 200 years since God gave that promise to Abraham, he believed so strongly that even though he was dying, he knew that someday the children of Israel would get up, leave Egypt, and go to Israel. And so he gives instructions. Hey, when I am dead, you make sure that my bones are set aside, that when the children of Israel go out, they take my bones and bury them there in the land of Israel. The idea is this. Joseph, though he had the wealth of Egypt, didn't care about it. His heart wasn't in Egypt. His heart was in the new land. And there's a key for us as we live through this life is that we shouldn't have our eyes on this land but on another land that God has promised. Worldliness is simply where our gaze is horizontal rather than vertical. Joseph's gaze was beyond Egypt that one day he would occupy the promises that God had given. Final example is the faith of Moses. Parents, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. In brief, here's the story. Pharaoh is very intimidated because the Israelite community is growing like crazy. He thinks that one day there will be more Israelites than Egyptians. And so he thinks, we're going to be taken over. What we ought to do is make them slaves. And finally, he issues an edict to kill every male Hebrew child. Well, there's a couple of people that decided not to go through with it. Their names were Amram and Jochebed, the parents of Moses. They believed so strongly that this little Moses, this little baby, was destined for some great work. Instead of obeying the king's command, they risked their lives, built a boat, put pitch in this little basket, set their baby in it, and then probably the hardest thing a parent would ever do is to let that basket go down the river. Now it was out of their hands. They said, God, that basket goes down the river. That child's in your hands. I believe that you've got something important for that child to do. Well, what happened? Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket, grabbed it. Moses' sister Miriam saw the whole thing, rushes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, you know, i got a suggestion. Since this child's a Hebrew child, you might want to get a Hebrew mother to nurse it for you. She says, great idea. Who can we get? So I've got just the person. Ran back and got Moses' real mother. And Moses' mother nursed Pharaoh with all of the resources of Egypt. And Moses became a strong leader for the Lord. A.B. Simpson once said, True faith drops the letter in the mailbox and lets it go. Distrust holds on to a corner of the letter and wonders why an answer never comes. In each of these cases, they were willing at the point of death or at the point of the baby leaving to just, hey, I don't see the fulfillment right now, but I'm going to let go and trust the Lord. In each case, the baton was passed from generation to generation, from father to son, from grandfather to grandson, or from brother to brother. They only heard about the promises, but they clung to the promises, and they passed the promises on. Final question. Are you passing these promises on? Are you sharing the treasure or are you clutching it? Yes, I'm a Christian and I want to make sure I get through this life. 
Or are you saying, I want to make sure others get to heaven. I want to pass this treasure on to others. And specifically, I'm talking again about families. Some time ago in Reader's Digest was an article. It had a fascinating title. A copy was given to me. The title was, If I Were Starting My Family Again, What I Would Do. It was written by a Christian man, John Drescher. Uh, the subtitle was Warm and Wise Counsel from a Veteran Father. He said, If I were to start my family all over again, now at the end of my life, here's what I would do. Listen carefully. First, I would love my wife more for the sake of my children. He wanted to make sure that those kids saw a strong role model of a dad loving a mom so that they would know what to do when they get older. I would love my wife more. Secondly, I would develop feelings of belonging within my family so that my child feels that he belongs in our family and not belongs somewhere else. Strong sense of belonging. He said, I would laugh more with my children. He said, I would be a better listener. He said, I would do more encouraging. Finally, he said, and the most important, I would seek to share God more intimately. He commented on that in this article. He said, quote, I remember a little fellow I heard about who was frightened by lightning and thunder. He called out one dark night, Daddy, I'm scared. Son, said his father, God loves you, and he's going to take care of you. The son said, I know God loves me, Dad, but right now I want somebody who has skin on him. And John Drescher concluded the article by saying, If I were starting my family again, that's what I would want to be above all else, God's love with skin on. Great counsel from a veteran father to be God's representative with skin on for our children from generation to generation, passing on the baton of faith. Final question. Where are you with God personally this morning? You may have come from a family that gave you a Christian upbringing, but you have left it. I was raised with that stuff. I'm tired of church, you might say. But it takes faith not only within the home, but faith within your personal heart. You must trust in your Lord yourself. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, so many examples, many men and many women in this chapter, a great cloud of witnesses who run the race before us. Father, my prayers today is for the families that are in this room right now, that ours would be strengthened, that our wives would feel secure by our love for them, that husbands would be respected and honored by their wives, and that children, in seeing that authentic role modeling, would have a strong base with which to face this world. Seeing these predictions of the erosion of the family are frightening, but I pray that we would be men and women who'd simply look at that and go, no way, that's not going to happen here. To take a stand, make a commitment, and follow through, you'll give us the strength. Father, I pray for those who don't yet know you that a commitment would be made to follow the Lord Jesus Christ from this day forward.